Rhonda McGee was only three years old when President Lyndon Johnson uh, signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. She was born in Kinston, North Carolina. It was a segregated town of tobacco farmers, uh, furniture manufacturers, and a place where white supremacy structured every aspect of society. She grew up in the projects. Her family was dealing with alcoholism and domestic abuse and poverty. But with her second marriage, uh, she moved to Hampton, Virginia. And it was there that she greatly benefited from the school desegregation efforts of the 1970s. She was elected her high school uh, class president. But the turning point in her life was a call she got from her boyfriend, Jake. He told her that his dad had kicked him out of the house because he had discovered that he was dating a black girl. Rhonda was on a PhD tract at the University of Virginia in sociology when one of her professors told her that he thought she would be able to implement her interest in social justice in the law rather than in sociology. So she completed her law degree at the University of Virginia. On graduation, she started her career as a practicing lawyer in a firm in San Francisco that had recruited her. Although she enjoyed her, her law work, she really felt that it just didn't fit with her values. And it was only when she was doing pro bono work that she felt she could address her interest in social justice. In San Francisco, she was living in a society that was supposed to be integrated, but she found still very, very fractured. And it spurred her to begin her inquiry into the inner work of racial justice. Having witnessed desegregation as a child growing up in Virginia, she knew that it was possible to make changes. She practiced law for four years uh, with this firm in San Francisco, and then she was recruited by the San Francisco, uh, University of San Francisco School of Law. Uh, she has taught there now for over 20 years, and she's currently a tenured professor at the university. In her search for meaningful legal work, she started exploring different spiritual paths. Um, Rhonda had been raised as a Christian, uh, but she began investigating Buddhism. She started practicing mindfulness in, in fits and starts, but had mixed feelings about it because she really didn't find anyone in that sphere that shared her background, so she felt not quite comfortable there. Um, but she really said she found her spiritual footing when uh, a group of lawyers invited her to join them uh, meditating regularly with Norman Fisher. McGee then decided to further explore both Buddhism and mindfulness as a way to navigate being open to the vulnerability uh, at working at this intersection uh, of racialized people and institutions. She realized that if she was going to work towards building bridges between these different communities, she had to find a way to 
deal with the indignities that she regularly suffered uh, and in a way that didn't further damage herself or, or others. McGee studied extensively with Roshi Joan Halifax. She also trained with John Kabat-Zinn, uh, Professor Emer Emeritus of Medicine and the creator of the Center for Mindfulness Medicine, Mind Mindfulness Medicine Healthcare and Society. She is a graduate of the OASIS Teacher Training Institute at University of Massachusetts. Her study and practice of both Buddhism and mindfulness became intertwined with her teaching of law to the, her students as she explored issues of race and racism in the law. In her book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Professor McGee explains how her law school education, she was really, she was taught the basics of things like torts and contracts and criminal law with their historical and their um, cultural and social context. But she also learned not to see race, gender, or class as relevant factors in the law. When she asked one of her professors what was the impact of former Supreme Justice Hugo, Hugo Black's membership in the KKK on his legal opinions, she was admonished not to speculate. Her professor responded, being a member of the KKK at that time, Hugo Black was from Alabama, was akin to being a member of the Kiwanis Club. The muffled laughter of her mostly white and male classmates shut down all of her inquiry into race and the law. The law, as Professor McGee was taught, is colorblind. Uh, this doctrine is first established in the case of Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. A mixed-race man by the name of Homer Plessy got on a whites-only railroad car in Louisiana. He was uh, arrested and taken off the car. The case eventually went to the Supreme Court that upheld this racial segregation under a separate but equal doctrine. They ruled that the 14th Amendment applied only to political and civil rights, but not to social ones. So this decision constitutionally sanctioned the Jim Crow laws of the post-Reconstruction South and continued on with the racial seg segregation that we saw develop uh, after that in the North. It wasn't until Brown versus the Board of Education in, 15, in 19, 1954 that it was argued that schools for black children were inherently unequal to the schools provided for white children and thus violated the 14th Amendment. Equal Protection Clause which says that no state can deny any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of the laws. But the practical application of school desegregation efforts um, continued that Plessy colorblind legal narrative. In the case of parents involved in community schools versus Seattle School District Number 1, which was argued in 2007, it was ruled that it was unconstitutional for a school district to use race as a factor in assigning students to schools uh, in order to bring each school 
into balance of the, with the racial composition of the entire district. As a result of FHA redlining housing policies, this particular Seattle school district was strictly racially segregated. Yet, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in his majority opinion, the way to stop discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race. Professor McGee offers a set of practices and skills she calls color insight rather than color blindness. Color insight aims to lessen or, or even release the grip that race and racism has in our sense of ourselves and one another. It supports seeing racism while rejecting its norma normalization or, or even bypassing it with color blindness. Color insight is the ability to sit with what's uncomfortable while having a challenging conversation about racial justice. While having a conversation with one of my brothers about how our mother had a talk with me as I was beginning to start dating, about how I should never, never date colored boys. She told me, their family structure just isn't like our family structure, and your children just wouldn't fit in. My brother lashed out at me in anger. He's saying, how dare you call our mother a racist? She was not a white supremacist. It was in that moment that my sitting practice helped me not react to his anger, but to be able to just sit there and be present with that moment of, of tension and, and, and feel the deep suffering that we both experienced as children and we're still holding as adults. That's color insight, as Rhonda teaches. It means seeing social hierarchy as something that we didn't create but we are intimately part of. Just as our, gen, our Zen practice of just sitting is to be aware of true reality, the practice of color insight is not to be blind to these social hierarchies that we didn't personally create, but which we were born into and in which we were raised. It's like the Zen story about Buddha nature, the fish swimming in the sea or the birds flying in the air. The fish doesn't know that it's in the water and the bird doesn't know that it's in the air. Yet it is the water that gives the fish life and it is the air that supports the bird in flight. So color insight is deeply examining our own racism in the social circles in which we swim and, and the people who share the air we breathe. It is the genuine wish for healing and, and with regular practice of, of mindful awareness of our physical reactions to, to these kinds of situations, we can be aware of our uncomfortableness in that, in that space and with those experiences, but also to be able to look deeply at our radical connection with each other and with the human family. Um, this is the heart of Color Insight and the teaching that Rhonda offers in her, in her uh, being and in her books and hopefully in our presence next, next um, Monday when she comes. Um, I'd like to close with a, 
quote from James Baldwin that Professor McGee quote has in her book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice. It says, now everything, now everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Well, I hope this brief summary will include you all to come and, and uh, sit with Rhonda uh, next Monday. Thank you very much. That is correct. Those were Rhonda McGee's examples among few that she gave and how she was taught in law school. Oh, here. Oh, yeah, yeah, Mike. Jim, could you say your name so people on Zoom know who's speaking? He doesn't have to anymore. I just said it. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was redundant. Jim, say your name. <laughs> Jim, say your name. <laughs> My name is Sarah. Uh, um, now, you, see, you used the word racialized, and uh, I'm not quite sure what that word means, but does it just mean to be aware of? Race? I took that from Rhonda's book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, and she uses it repeatedly. She says, we as, as people are racialized white, racialized black. And oh. I think it means that it's our social structures okay. that give us this identity. But we are human beings, and, and we share blood and bone, and there is no fundamental difference between us. We are, we are one. We are co intimately connected with each other. But it's these social structures, uh, that uh, the social identities that racialize us. So a racialized person is a racist? No. Uh, um, Oscar just made the comment, a racialized, so a racialized person is a racist. I think quite the opposite. It's a person who can only see my see me through the lens of the color of my skin or the shape of my nose or the my hair is is a racist they're reacting to the social structures that define certain characteristics as being better or worse up or down and, and I think with the term racialized she's trying to break through that and saying and to, to focus on the social the social identities that that give those kinds of meanings in, in our society. So, so the, what, uh, the so the um, I'm I'm just um, probing here. So uh, do I understand that a, a, a racist viewpoint? Uh, is limited to physical um, characteristics like per color of a person's skill, skin, whereas racialization has a broader um, uh, set of connotations related. I think that's what she's trying to get at, uh, Oscar, is that it's, you know, we're not, we're born into this society, and, and as a result, we are racialized white because 
people perceive that of us. And it's our social structures that racialize us white. Is it that racialization forms is, is our own self-image regarding race? And are others, others around us who perceive us as white or black or brown or Asian? Thank Maybe you. just continuing our conversation might shed some light on, on the questions that you're asking. And partly we want to be able to have an experiential exercise too that goes with this, so maybe that will help too. Um, but I just want to make sure if I look this way, do people on Zoom see me this way? Okay. Okay, because I keep thinking I'm, I should turn this way. <laughs> okay. Okay, go ahead. Oscar, I, I think it would be really good for you to repeat that inquiry uh, when Rhonda's here when Professor McGee is here, because that's right from her book. So you can, she can contradict me and expand on it. And I think it's a very important point, and it's consistent throughout her, her writing in that book. So I, I, that's, I'm glad you picked up on that. Okay. Got a question Got from uh, Dave on Zoom. Please, Dave, go ahead. Uh, yeah, the... Um, I can really relate to the racialized getting an echo. Um, society puts us in little boxes. The uh, you know there you know I grew up. There was a white side of town. There was a black side of town. You know, it's, uh, you grow up, you know, I was raised not to be prejudiced, but you know, as, you know, my siblings and cousins, we've kind of discussed, it was, we should not be prejudiced against them. You know, so there, there's always this divide, you know, and, you know, I was told we are not any better than them. But there's always the divide. Uh, you uh, even in um, you know I worked in San Francisco and, and worked for a nonprofit housing developer that had a contract to do affordable housing with the city, and the. Uh, The local uh, equal opportunity affirmative action board, I, you know, were, you know, even though I worked for uh, what was a minority run organization, it was a Hispanic run organization, and, you know, they expect, they kind of like expected you to have 3.7 Asian lesbians, you know, and uh, there, there would be, uh, the the folks who were trying to uh, <laughs> lost for words a little bit, but uh, are trying to enforce equality, you know, would uh, even send out questionnaires. Do you you know do you consider your skin white, black, yellow? I, you know, they said this is. 
so it's hard to I'm just I'm just say this and shut up it's it's hard to avoid generalization in this society and I think that's what racialization is thank you for sharing Dave I know I, we do have a, another uh, exercise and 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 uh, uh, talk to sort of expand on some of these ideas. So I think let's hold the questions if we can, and there may be more after we finish our exercise. Well, I'm I'm glad that this is this working. <clears throat> okay, I'm. <clears throat> yes, the title of this whole presentation is social conditioning as a cause of suffering. And that's what we're all really trying to talk about, is how we are conditioned, um, for all of us here right now as white people, to relate to worldviews and our behaviors and our attitudes towards other people is all about the ways that we've been conditioned even outside of our awareness. So... um, I, one of the things I value about Rhonda McGee is that I feel she has a deep understanding of how our racialized social conditioning functions, mostly outside of our awareness. And it's because it's functioning outside of our awareness that it causes suffering for all people, people of color and white people. So... Um, I'm just really kind of picking up on the things that Sarah has said that that the whole emphasis really is on how do we see our social conditioning and that that has to be the first step to make any changes by breaking out of our social conditioning into a larger sense of understanding the world and other people. Um, so Rhonda McGee has really drawn on some Buddhist practices to help us engage in practices that will open up our ability to see our unconscious dynamics of race and racism that continue to function in our society and cause suffering. And so today we want to, I want to, we want to invite us to participate in one of these exercises so that we can actually learn a little bit about how to access some parts of our social conditioning that, sorry, I have to keep looking that that way, um, that remain on an unconscious level. And um, there's a a poet laureate, her name is Joy Harjo of the Muscogee Creek Nation, and one of her poetic um, phrases is, let's not shame our eyes for seeing. Instead, thank them for their bravery. Let's not shame our eyes for seeing. Instead, thank them for their bravery. Um, Because this is what it's all about. It's being able to turn and see how our social conditioning has uh, impacted how we view ourselves and other people. So so part of what we want to ask is, how do we see what we can't see? or what we don't see. So as Sarah pointed out, as white people here, we live in a, in a stream of, of uh, 
our white privilege. For example, I just realized maybe a year ago <laughs> that my grammar school, through high school, through college, through my first master's degree, all my teachers and professors were white. It was only in my doctoral program that I had one African heritage professor. Uh, and actually, when I thought about it, probably most BIPOC people have also had primarily white teachers or professors. And to me, I, I didn't make the connection that this was my social conditioning. You know, what I didn't get or what I didn't learn because of this, you know, sort of silo view of just being taught by other white people. Um, so I just want to back up and sort of say what Rhonda McGee says social conditioning is, and in a way we've already named all of that. Um, but she makes a distinction between our personal identities, like, well, I love to play the piano, I'm a mother, I'm a senior citizen, versus identities that arise through how we are defined by the world outside like what Dave was saying, by the kind of categories that we put people into and seem to need to put people into in order to orient how to relate to them. Um, and our social identities include beliefs and assumptions about life and ways of acting. So, you know, like I was taught, if you really work hard at something, you can accomplish whatever you want. And I believed that. Um, but the dark side is, this leads to a sense of entitlement. But at the same time, it's not really true that I can, just through hard work, do whatever I want. Because I had, whatever I accomplished, I had many resources. I had lots of support. You know, I was sort of given slack as a white person. So, so Rhonda McGee says, whites have been legally, economically, and culturally privileged as presumptively deserving of inclusion and better than fair treatment, whereas non-whites have suffered from the ongoing reality that they have to challenge and fight for their right to be treated with equality and respect and dignity. She says, because the experiences between white and the racialized others are so different, it's hard for us to communicate our experiences in ways that maintain a sense of common ground. It's imperative then that those racialized as white find ways of opening their capacity to see whiteness as whiteness. So we know that Buddhism teaches us that the causes of suffering are the arising of a permanent self and a sense of separate self, because these are fundamentally delusions. <laughs> um, there is no such thing as a separate self. We're, we're all interconnected. But let's just name that our socially conditioned selves are also fixed selves. They're constructed selves. So until we are aware of them, we can't let go of our attachment to these identities. And this is the way that we become aware of our fixed views, our biases, our prejudices, and become open to listening to others who have very different experiences than we do. So um, she offers us practices she calls making refuge. 
and one of them is sitting sitting with insight uh, and this is related to color insight but she really talks about how we need to create sort of make an inner refuge within ourselves of, of non-judgment so that we can acknowledge and receive what comes to us about our biases and our stereotypes and our social conditioning and then to be able to extend this refuge, making refuge across races, but only when we are able to really listen to ourselves in this deep way first, before we can listen to people whose experiences are so different than ours. So her understanding of mindfulness practices is very important here because she says our bones, our bodies know more about our racialized identities than how we think about it. So these mindfulness practices invite us to notice our body sensations, our discomfort, our anxiety, fear, for example, that present themselves when we think of a particular racialized situation. So in this making refuge, we are going to be inviting an experience of a racialized uh, context and then listen for how our body responds and pay attention to the emotions that arise. So in a few moments, we will be hopefully at least inviting all of us to do one of these practices very briefly um, as a way to make refuge and a compassionate capacity to be aware of um, our biases, our reactivity, um, our fixed views that we haven't been aware of. Um, And then to wonder, what are the stories we tell ourselves about these experiences? So we will be recognizing, accepting, and then allowing our bodies to reveal more. So um, maybe we can come back for a moment to the question, uh, how do we see what we don't see? If this practice is to help us see something that's unconscious or that's part of our conditioning that we don't know about, how do we see that? And so basically, we just start with wherever we're at now, wherever we are situated. It could be that all we are aware of is that we've lived in predominantly white neighborhoods our whole life. It could be that you are recalling a situation with another white person who's making racial slurs um, in a public context. It could be, I mean, I've heard people describe watching the news and hearing about a murder of a black person and they just jump up and turn the TV off. You know, that can be a kind of unconscious reaction that's very powerful, that we want to be non-judgmental of so that we can listen to see what's there. Um, So we just begin with a situation that comes into our awareness. Um, And then I'm just going to guide you through a little mindfulness practice. So, I mean, I was thinking... Um, as I was imagining talking to you, I could feel uh, that I have some okayness about saying, you know, 
I'm, I'm racist, but I became aware that to say I'm white, I'm a white privileged person, it, it's like, I didn't want to say that. I felt shame. And um, I, I noticed that I wanted, as I imagined saying this to you, I felt like hiding and wanting to, you know, sort of shrivel up. And I mean, the irony is, is that probably you already all know that about me, that I'm a white privileged person, but there's something about saying it that is something uncomfortable and, you know, the sense of wanting to hide. And so this would be an example, like for me in this exercise, this would be an example of my racialized situation that's coming up that then I can apply you know, this guiding that I'm going to be offering you. Uh, so um, obviously we're, this is going to be very brief. So um, we're just making refuge and getting a taste of it, dipping our toes in. So um, please don't put any pressure on yourself that something has to happen because actually whatever you notice, it will be significant. Um, so... I'm inviting you all to enter into this um, little guided uh, meditation together for about eight minutes, and then we'll have a time to share our experience with each other. Um, and this is just an example of a practice that Rhonda McGee uh, ha- is, you know, offers people when she does her workshops. So, um, so are you with me? <laughs> uh, Okay, so let's just begin by bringing our attention inward, noticing if we're comfortable in the position that we're sitting in or not, and then adjusting so that we can begin with an ability to kind of settle inside and become aware of our breath just to come in contact with our inhale, inhaling life, our exhale, giving out carbon dioxide, life to the world. Inhale and exhale. Appreciate that we're just sitting here together. And then take a moment to feel the air around you. Notice your feet or your butt sitting on the ground, connecting with the earth. Every human being ever to have lived has connected with the earth, is a part of the earth. So we'll begin by just resting in our bodies, resting in our wholeness, supported by all of us who are here with us together. So as we begin our guided meditation of making refuge and sitting in inquiry, We want to just be tender and welcoming to whatever arises. 
and you're going to invite ourselves to just allow a situation to emerge, a situation that has some connection to uh, racism, race, and societies and cultures, structures that maintain racism, to just allow yourself to let a situation come that you've been involved in, whether it's recently, whether it's way in the past, whether what's coming is just a memory. Take some time to let that moment arise now. And and let this situation come alive in you. Make it vivid in your imagination. Seeing the people involved, the color of their skin, their hair, what they're wearing. Just see it visually. See colors, see the space, the situation, the context that you're in. And now, bring your attention back to your body and be aware, notice what's in your physical sensations, anxiety, Tension, shame, anger, movement, wanting to get away or hide. Just allow all of that to just become uh, in your consciousness. We're not explaining or analyzing. We're just coming into that level of reactivity, discomfort, emotionality, and thoughts that come. Now take a few moments to, as you're staying with all of what's arising, say to yourself, and what is the story I'm telling myself about all of this? What is the story I'm telling myself?
become interested in it, curious about it. Wonder about this story. And as you're wondering and noticing this story that you're telling yourself, now kind of create a little space around that story. You know, sort of loosen it up a little bit. You know, it may not be how it seems at this moment. Just to create some space, some openness, some place for some shift or movement or new perspective. And then take a few moments now just to kind of collect yourself, kind of bring, uh, go back over your the process that you've been through. Notice anything that is especially important to you or standing out for you. And then we'll kind of take a few moments now to come back into the shared space, slowly open our eyes, kind of connecting again together as a community. And now um, we're just going to uh, break up into partners, uh, just one-on-one. And Anthony's going to create um, pairs over Zoom. And we'll have, um, you know, just about uh, three minutes each for each of us to share with our partners whatever we want to share. And it could be that you don't want to share anything, and that's okay too. Um, but just to describe uh, what this experience was like for you. And, um, you know, the process guidelines would be that, you know, the person who's sharing is just talking about yourself, and the person that's listening is listening silently, listening with one's full presence and open heart, uh, without any crosstalk, um, receiving what the person's sharing If you're having your own thoughts and reactions, you can put them aside to look at later. Uh, And then when I ring the bell, uh, the listener will just say thank you for sharing, and then we'll switch. And then we'll have time to come back to the 
the full group uh, for a little debriefing. So um, I was going to get the bell to ring. Um, oh, great. So I think, you know, we have two pairs here. <laughs> Three pairs, maybe. Um, Does the married couple want to chat to each other? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anthony, can you make little Zoom pairs? Okay. Uh, so basically, I'll just ring the bell after three minutes, and then you can switch. Um. I have to turn this off. Thank you. 
Well, we have some people who have hung in there with this process and experience and um, oh, here come some more people back. Great. Yeah, so this is just a chance to share anything else or ask questions, uh, raise good questions like Oscar and Dave did. Uh, anything else about this experience uh, that you want to say or comment on? Um, Oscar. Um, well, I just say that um, uh, 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 I, I've done a little white privilege work and workshops and so forth, yeah. and um, you know, recognized some time ago that I'm a racist. I was conditioned to be a racist as, as a child, and uh, I and um, like my other delusions, oh, I need to be you, you know careful with that story. Um, but I didn't expect ever to um, not be a racist. I thought it would be something 
you know, that conditioning was so deep that I didn't expect to ever transcend it. And my job was to pay close attention to it. But for some reason tonight, listening to you, Dorothy, it occurred to me, well, maybe I shouldn't hold that story that tight. Maybe someday I wouldn't stop being a racist. It's possible. It's possible. Um, so wow, thank you for really that. that's really powerful. Wow. You even could see that maybe you had a grip on that. Uh, that you had a grip on that assumption. Like you were holding that tight and now it's kind of opened, and at least with a wondering. Yeah. Great. Anybody else, Jim? I think you have like a rim thought. Oh, that's because the battery. Oh, when we switch it with a. Here comes Anthony. Different one. Oh, we'll go. Everything's dying. Yeah, well, we're over taxing the grid. Um, so. Yeah, I tell Larry, you know, I perfectly accept, I mean, now that I understand what a racialized identity is, or, you know, I completely get that I have one, uh, you know. But but also, I, I don't say that that's my whole identity. Uh, I don't say, and, and um, you know, I guess... Uh, I I like to think that uh, it doesn't um, play a very big part anymore in like who I am or how I relate to people. Uh, that's a story I tell myself. I think that it doesn't really play that big of a part. Um, but on the other hand, uh, do I have you know any black friends? Uh, no, I don't. You know, I still live in a racialized kind of situation. So maybe the tel- maybe now that I talk about it, I think that maybe the story I tell myself needs to be studied a little bit more. Yeah, I found that asking that question is. You know, in my working a little bit with this, it's really powerful. What is the story I tell myself about this? And then, you know, what happens if you put a little space around that and wonder about it? Uh, hmm. Anybody on Zoom want to say anything or uh, say something about their experience? Or Hi, Millard. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the thing that I might mention that came up uh, with Simone and myself is though I have uh, uh, very little contact with black people for example I, I am very clearly aware that uh, every night in my dreams, uh, there's uh, always a very, very strong representation of uh, people of all colors, which I think is ironic somehow. 
That's it for me. Like somehow your your consciousness is aware of that gap, or uh, and filling that gap in in your dream in some way. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. it's like it, every dream without fail. Wow. Anyone else? I've just a few comments. I feel like we could learn a lot from each other just by continuing this kind of a process. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, John. Yeah, I I was uh, sharing <clears throat> about an experience I had actually this morning, uh, running some errands in my car in town in Woodland where, where we live and um, directly behind me was a police car um, uh, right behind me. So um, my first thought was I'm, I'm driving normal uh, speed limit and um, my, my taillights are fine and my licensed registration is fine. Um, I feel very confident and not not uh, worried, but it suddenly I switched and I had this sense of if I were black, I would be very anxious, and I felt in my body um, becoming more and more afraid, terrified almost. Um, I can't even imagine what it would be like, but this sense of of fear that at any moment um, this police officer who was white um, could have pulled me over, and who knows what would have happened. Um, and and just bodily, I I really felt a shift in the way I was feeling as a white person, and how I would imagine um, a black person would respond. I, I can't endure uh, uh, police in my rearview mirror. I, I, it makes me so nervous. I, I get out of there any way I can. Yes, and that uh, the capacity to shift, uh, to imagine uh, a whole different experience uh, for someone who's a person of color and who's in an oppressed group yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all of this practice of awareness and seeing. Look, I don't know, Simone, are you wanting to say something? Oh, yeah, your hand's up. Yes, I was telling the Lord, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this uh, because I'm Jewish and grew up in an area where Jews were the minority. Like out of 25 people in my elementary school, there'd be one or two Jews in the whole class, that sort of thing. So there's been, as far as African-Americans, there's kind of been a special relationship. But I've had this awareness, and maybe some Jews think this way, that, yeah, we're Jewish, but people cannot tell. And at least we're not black. So I, I've been glad that I'm not black, sort of like what John was saying. And I often walk in neighborhoods thinking, if it's a strange neighborhood, boy, I'm glad I'm white, so I won't fall under suspicion. And there are just so many 
thoughts. But what came up during the meditation, as I was telling the Lord, is that I've had so little contact with African-Americans and heritage, whatever, that if I thought for an hour, I could probably write up every encounter that I've had. So that's really sad in a way. But I have immersed myself in the Vietnamese culture and language. Hmm. And that's one reason why I sought uh, to practice Buddhism in Vietnamese groups, because it wasn't because of the uh, ethnic diversity. I really like that a lot. So anyway, that's all. I'll stop there, but I have so many thoughts on this. Thank you so much. Yes. And and there is, there's sort of an, uh, being aware of something that's lacking in a way when we are not a diverse community. We can, that's something we can feel in our bodies, in our dreams. Um, well, well, I am sure we're over our time. And is there anyone else that wants to speak? Uh, thank you so much for participating and um, being open to these perspectives that Rhonda McGee has been writing about. And hope you come next week. And. I just want to end again with this poetic phrase, let's not shame our eyes for seeing. Uh, yeah. What's the rest of it? <laughs> Instead. Okay. I better <laughs> Instead, thank them for their bravery. No, this, this is another, this is a poet. Her name is Joy Harjo. She's a Native American poet. But I guess this poem that I read that she wrote, this phrase really fits exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, let's not shame our eyes for seeing. Instead, thank them for their bravery. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>